Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I'm not alone. Stop for 911. Where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. I'm pretty one look. Talk to the road. What's the problem? Send the police. One in the chest, one in the hip. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams. He's still coming down with this. He's pulled ahead of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cher- cherub face, cherub face little boy who would do it, whose life would be. I harm someone each time. Kill someone to be an enormous amount, of, uh, especially at first, uh, enormous amount of, of, of horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraband. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia and indeed around the globe. What will you be telling us about this week, Barney? Well, Tara, in another stupid example of alcohol fuel violence, or in what I call You Me Car Park Now, Richard Devries found himself on the wrong end of a punch over a car parking space. What he did next was brutal and disproportionate and had most people scratching their heads and asking why wasn't this man already in prison? Well, that's the kind of story we'll never run out of. I know. I actually had this. Unfortunately, <laughs> I had this sweet vegan friend who's like, you know, saving the trees and stuff. And she once said to me, "So, with your podcast, do you think you'll ever run out of murders?" You can imagine my response. <laughs> well, Tara, you know, like domestic violence really gets my blood rising. It gets all of our blood rising. Um, alcohol fuel violence is another big problem in this country of oh, ours. Oh, big time! And I'm sure that happens all around the world. Probably. I know mm. it happens here. And what will you be talking about this week, Tara? Oh, I've got a doozy. All right. Nicknamed Bloody Babs by the press, vamp from the wrong side of the tracks, Barbara Graham was a petty criminal who graduated to murder. Her mother wasn't in the least bit surprised. She'd always told Babs that she'd turn out bad. Oh, intriguing. Mm-hmm. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. Barbara Graham was born Barbara Elaine Ford on June 23, 1923 in Oakland, California to unwed teen sex worker Hortense Ford. Hortense. Hortense. That's a nice name, isn't it? It's like being a sex worker in the past tense. Yeah. Hortense. <laughs> Actually, the present tense for her. When Barbara was two, her mother, who was still a teenager, was sent to reform school for being recalcitrant and wayward i got to tell you, Barney, I'm feeling rather recalcitrant and wayward myself today. Well, you're looking that way too. Yeah, you're being too kind. After this, Barbara was raised by strangers and extended family. She was a very bright girl, but growing up in this situation meant she didn't end up getting much of an education. When Barbara was 12, a welfare worker who knew about her situation wanted to adopt her and try to give her a better life. The woman said... The poor little kid never had anyone who really loved her, and she was the most beautiful thing in the world. She was a little doll, always so lively and full of fun. I managed to take her to live with me for a couple of months, but Hortense would not even consider letting me adopt her. She was a spiteful, vindictive woman. I truly believe that she hated Barbara. Ugh, what Hortense. A goblin. I don't like Hortense. No, Hortense. Not cool. 
Uh, yeah, Hortense was definitely a piece of work, if that wasn't already obvious. Mm. The best thing anyone could say about her was that she was an indifferent mother. Most people described her parenting technique as hostile, and she never let Barbara forget that she was illegitimate. Well, it's not exactly her fault that she's illegitimate, is it? Hortense. <laughs> she drummed into her head that she was going to turn out bad because of it. Years later, Barbara would tell a reporter that she was certain her mother didn't care whether she lived or died as long as I didn't bother her. Yeah. Barbara ran away from home when she was 13. After she was located by authorities, they made her a ward of the court. She was classified as a wayward girl on the grounds of immorality because she was a runaway who admitted that she'd had sex with multiple people. Yeah, let's blame the 13-year-old girl for being promiscuous, not the pedophiles that were hounding her for sex, huh? Well, this is 1936, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely the uh, evil teenage temptress's fault, yeah? Yeah. Oh, children, they can be so sexy. Barbara was placed at the convent of the Good Shepherd, but they weren't good shepherds, for this little lamb found a way to escape and ran away again. Ah, slippery. When she was located, Barbara was arrested for vagrancy and sentenced to serve time at Ventura State School for Girls, which was the same reform school where her mother had been. How's that for a family legacy? That's a great family legacy. Employees at the reform school said she smirks and struts around and was frequently written up for her attitude and conduct. She ran away from there several times during her sentence. Being in reformatory school toughened Barbara up. She had to stand up to bullies and learn to defend herself and fight. She was on her own and nobody was going to protect her. If she wanted to survive, she had to find a way herself. After being released from reform school in 1939 at the age of 16, Barbara had a bad reputation, limited education and a criminal record. But her girls got to eat, so she'd get meals bought for her and make some cash by hanging around the docks and going out with sailors from the Oakland Navy Yard, just like Barney does. Hey, what? what? <laughs> Were you doodling again? Were you not listening? No, Are you drawing was... some kind of sex worker elephant again? No, I was drawing some nice hot sailors for me to date. <laughs> oh, no, no, I wasn't. <laughs> She and other girls would loiter outside the main gate until they got picked up by young sailors going on shore leave. The sailors nicknamed these girls seagulls. Uh, uh. Oh, man, they'd go crazy if you threw a chip near them. I'm sure they would. Seagulls love chips. They really do. They really do. Not all of the sailors expected these girls to put out. Sometimes these were young men who were far from home for the first time and just wanted company. So some of the dates were all like happy days, drinking soda pop and eating burgers at Al's Diner. But some of these seamen expected far more than that. You know, something involving seamen. Mm, so sometimes you get Ralph the mouth and sometimes you get Fonzie. And, and he, sometimes you just have to sit on it, Barbara. He, oh, no. I see what you did there and I did not appreciate <laughs> ah, it. I think you got a little surprised by it. I did. When she was 17, Barbara got married for the first time. She hung up her seagull dresses, enrolled in business college and had her first child. The marriage didn't last long and she was divorced in 1941. Over the next few years, she got married again and had another kid while working a string of low-paying jobs as a cocktail waitress, dice girl and hotel clerk. Wow, dice girl outfit, huh? So what exactly is a dice girl, Tara? Uh, I believe that they give um, Andrew Dice Clay rusty trombones. <laughs> really? There's a big demand for that? Yeah, I'm sure there yeah, is. Well, He's a disgusting man. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> He's pretty into it. By the age of 22, Babs had known for a long time that her good looks and banging body were her biggest commodity. So she decided to do a true crime podcast. But then she realised you can't make money from that and she did sex work for a while in San Francisco for a brothel madam named Sally Stanford. Oh, well, that makes more sense. Yeah, look, but... you know that's where we're going to end up, right? Do you have Sally's number? Um, yeah, I do, actually. <laughs> I, I really, I have all of her contact details. I'm just going to rock up on her doorstep. You know podcasting is actually just a gateway to prostitution. Well, right? I've still got my Dice Girl outfit. Um... <laughs> and Andrew Dice Clay is still alive. Well, there you go. <laughs> and the rusty trombone never goes out of style. Well, it certainly doesn't. Of this career choice, I, I think I mean the sex work, but I could mean the podcasting, Barbara later said, Sure, I was a prostitute and a damn good one. Why do people make so much of sex anyway? It's part of our natural makeup, like getting hungry for food. If you want to eat, you go to a grocery store or a restaurant. If you need sleep, you sleep. If you want sex, why not get it? 
What's the difference? True that. It wasn't long before Barbara became involved in drugs and gambling and fraternising with dodgy people and career criminals. Now, Babs had form herself. She was arrested for disorderly conduct, vagrancy and suspicion of prostitution several times apiece. Well, excuse me, madam, I do believe you're a prostitute, but I can't prove it. So we'll arrest you for vagrancy. Yeah, yeah, or suspicion of prostitution. Hmm. In 1944, she did four months in jail for vagrancy, which was a catch-all charge used when the law couldn't prove prostitution. Aha. Uh-huh. Or suspicion of prostitution, I suppose. <laughs> we don't even suspect that she is one. Uh. But God damn it if she isn't. She was also charged with perjury in 1947 for supplying a false alibi to some dodgy dudes who'd been charged with assault. She herself had no record of violent offences, but she frequently associated with men who did. After her stint in state prison, Barbara travelled to Reno, Nevada and found work as a nurse's aide in the small town of Tonopah. What's the bet I said that wrong? Tonopah. 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 Come at me, Tonopah. <laughs> this little country town was an ideal place to stay out of trouble. Barbara worked at the Nye County Hospital, lived in an upmarket area and made some non-criminal friends for a change. Hey, maybe Hortense was wrong and she wouldn't turn out so bad after all. Okay, so there was a fork in the road there for Babs mm-hmm. and she decided to go the, you know, you know, the straight and narrow highway for a while. She yeah. did. Oh, Barbara good. dated a clean-cut auto parts salesman for several months and ended up marrying him. This was her third marriage. Barbara left her job at the hospital and took on managing a small diner. She worked long hours at this honest job and, well, she started getting disillusioned with the quiet married life. Oh, she needed a bit of excitement in her life. Yeah. One day she up and left, getting on a bus for Los Angeles. Oh. Just like the beginning of every Poison song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she got a room in a less than reputable establishment on Hollywood Boulevard and returned to sex work. By the time Babs was 27, she had three ex-husbands and a long record of arrests. In 1953, she married a bartender named Henry Graham, who she'd met in a gin mill. What, what's a gin mill? Uh, it's it's like, like a windmill, but it's way more fun. Oh, well, it has gin in it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you just stand under it with your mouth open. Sweet. Henry was described as a somewhat bland-faced man with thick, wavy hair that started far up on his forehead. And that was actually the best thing anyone had to say about him. Oh, wow. <laughs> he sounds hot. Yeah. Uh, she had her third child with him, and in return, he introduced her to hard drugs. Well, that's a fair swap. Yeah, isn't that beautiful? Oh, here's, a baby, here's a baby for you. Oh, uh, here's, here's some a syringe. Her- here's some heroin. <laughs> it was a push present. Ah. Bab said they started off on laudanum and marijuana, but quickly progressed to heroin. At first she thought she could control her addiction, but she ended up never leaving the house without a hypodermic needle and a spoon in her purse. Oh, hard, hard, hard to explain why else you have those, isn't it? I don't know. Maybe you had to take a, yoga, a tub of yoga to work with you. And that's why you need a hypodermic needle. Well, yeah, you could explain the spoon with that. I was getting to the hypodermic okay, needle. Okay, and how were you going to explain um, that? And somehow involve pooing, no doubt. Diabetes. How about that? Yeah, but the spoon Insulin. makes it look a bit suspicious. That's for the yogurt. You have to take the yogurt as well. <laughs> well I, like, I like the defensiveness in your tone. <laughs> yeah, I already explained the spoon. You can cover that with the yogurt, all right? Okay. And you just say you're a diabetic. So does this mean that she needs to carry yogurt with her at all times too? Yes. Okay. All right. Well, see, this makes sense. I'm glad we workshopped right. it. Did they have yogurts in tubs back in the 40s, early 40s? No, she had to just pour it into her handbag. They were probably in cans in those days. <laughs> Can of jam, can Dad of yogurt, a lead can. can of beans, yeah. lunch is ready. That's right. The fact that Henry and Barbara were both junkies put a bit of a strain on their relationship, as did the fact that he kept getting fired from his bartending jobs. So he was always looting Babs's stash every time she went out or fell asleep. Oh. I know, come on, man. This led her to take the drugs and the cash and leave him with the baby. Wow. She took the heroin, left him with the baby. Fair took, exchange? Took all those cans of yogurt. Yeah. <laughs> In her purse. That's right. She always actually left her husbands with the baby. Even though in this case it doesn't seem like a good idea, I guess this is just what happens when you're born bad. Well, it's Hortense, yes. It's, yes. That's what she said. Oh, bad times, those Hortenses. Yeah. Barbara moved in with a friend of her husband's, probably not anymore, named Emmett Perkins. Emmett's business was illegal gambling, and Barbara would help bring him customers by luring men from bars to his crooked gaming tables. And they were banging. 
Oh. Emmett told Babs about a burglary he was planning and wanted her help with. Anyway, um, apparently this frail 64-year-old widow named Mabel Monaghan uh, allegedly kept a large amount of cash in her home in Burbank, California. Well, that's... that's hidden behind the yogurt, I guess. Well, no, that's just as good because you can just buy yogurt with cash. <laughs> and heroin. And heroin. Oh, yeah, your heroin. Yeah. Uh, you forgot all about that, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mabel's daughter, Iris, had once been married to a flashy Las Vegas gambler named Luther Scherer. Iris and Luther used to live in the house where Mabel now lived. When Iris and Luther got divorced, Iris received the house as part of her settlement. Iris later married a wealthy importer and gave the house to her widowed mother when she went to live in New York. Bit, did, of, bit of a history. Oh, yeah, nice. History lesson what, of the Burbank property. What did he import? I believe he was both an importer and an exporter. Oh. Mabel's house in Burbank wasn't super fancy or expensive, but there was a rumour on the streets that she kept a safe with at least $100,000 of her former son-in-law's cash in it. Ooh. Yeah. Because Mabel and Luther had actually remained close after Iris divorced him. Luther even still had a closet full of suits and personal belongings at Mabel's place. Um, at one point, he was seriously ill with cirrhosis of the liver, and he came and stayed with Mabel. She made sure that he was fed and comfortable and essentially nursed him back to health. So Mabel l still likes her ex-son-in-law yeah. and, and helps him. She sounds like a pretty exactly. decent person. Well, yeah, she does. So you know mm. what's going to happen to her, right? Oh, She's going to win an Academy Award. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, basically, I mean, it's a bullshit rumour, but the fact that he still, like, stays there sometimes, I guess, gave it some credibility. Early on the morning of March 10th, 1953, Barbara joined Emmett and his knucklehead associates, Baxter Shorter, Santo and John True. John was a dull-witted deep-sea diver who was down on his luck and willing to try his hand at crime. Oh, that's a good, that's what a, could possibly go wrong? That's a great sentence. Say I it know. again. Yeah, all right. John was a dull-witted deep-sea diver who was down on his luck and willing to try his hand at crime. All right. Yeah, I, I hope know. he wore his flippers. <laughs> Barbara knocked on Mabel's door and pretended that she was having car trouble and needed to use her phone. Once Mabel opened the door for Babs, the four men burst in. The gang demanded money and jewellery from Mabel, but she'd been too long on this earth to put up with their shit and refuse to give them anything. Good on you, Mabel. I know how she feels. I've been too long on this earth to put up with your shit. Well, you do every week. I know. At this point, Barbara apparently pistol-whipped Mabel several times, cracking her skull. Santo and Emmett tied her up and dragged her to a hall closet where they strangled her with a piece of cloth before the gang ransacked her house looking for money and valuables. The robbery was a complete fucking waste of time and life. The drug-fucked gang of losers found nothing of value in the house and left empty-handed. They later learned that they'd missed about 15 grand in jewels and valuables, stashed in a shabby old black purse hanging from a hook in the closet near where they had murdered Mabel. Mabel's gardener arrived at her house on the morning of March 11th. He noticed that the front door was open and that the house had been thoroughly ransacked. He quickly called the police. Mabel's body was found in the blood-covered hallway, partly within a closet, hands bound behind her back. At the coroner's inquest, it was ruled that Mabel's cause of death had been asphyxiation due to strangulation, not as the story would be retold over the years from being pistol-whipped to death. She did, however, have 12 head wounds that had crushed her skull in two different places, but those were not what killed the elderly widow. And Babs did that? Yep, apparently oh. so. Ooh, nasty. Born bad. Born bad. Hortense was right. Hortense is always right. Well, I mean, Hortense is like past tense. It's like hindsight. I mean, <laughs> everything's 2020 in Hortense, right? Uh, I always knew my daughter would be a sex worker. It's easy to say. In Hortense. <laughs> <laughs> Mabel's daughter Iris offered a $5,000 reward for information leading to an arrest. This money motivated an informant who led Burbank police to Baxter Shorter, an ex-convict with a record of property crimes. Shorter squealed like a bird and he sung like a pig about the Burbank murder. He was a very confused man. <laughs> a few days later, on April 14th, Shorter was abducted at gunpoint from his home and was never seen again. Uh, Baxter Shorter is missing? Yep, he was presumably murdered in retaliation for his confession. Ah, oh, dog. Yeah. Squealer. Yeah. 
Dim-witted deep-sea diver turned burglar John True had no criminal record and agreed to become a state witness in exchange for immunity from prosecution. He'd spent so long under the sea that he didn't have much of a rap sheet. I heard he was married to a clam. Babs said she was innocent, but the authorities had enough evidence to put her behind bars. While waiting for her trial in Los Angeles County Jail, Babs, who was bisexual, became involved in a relationship with a fellow prisoner named Donna Prow. Donna was serving a sentence for vehicular manslaughter. Mmm, saucy. Law enforcement approached Donna with a deal to reduce her jail time in return for helping to get a confession from Barbara. Uh Uh-huh, can't trust no one in the pokey. Keen to get out of prison and putting freedom before lesbi love, Donna offered Barbara a false alibi from a friend of hers in return for $500. Well, I ask you this, Tara. If you put freedom before lesbi love, is it real lesbi love? No. I don't think it is. I don't think so either, no. I don't think it is. No. It's not. Good point. (laughs) Way, way, way to bring the everything crashing to an end yet again, Barney. Okay. <laughs> I thought it was, you know, I respect, I respect all kinds of relationships, and if if love is real, I I, I respect that, and uh, but I don't think it was in this case. <laughs> I think there might have been just some scissoring to get that that door to swing, really. Well, um, if you can think of a better way to make a door swing, I'd like to hear about it. <laughs> The friend she referred her to was an undercover officer named Sam Siriani. Sam visited Babs in jail on three occasions to plan the alibi and he taped all of their conversations. Ah, he's wearing a wire, clandestine subterfuge wire stuck to his chest hairs. Yep, that was actually, you know, the show The Wire? That was the original title. Subterfuge clandestine (laughs) wire taped to his chest hair. But then they were like, oh, it's not catchy, is it? Well, yeah, I never got any money for that. So Babs made some very incriminating statements during these conversations, including references to Baxter Shorter, he's been done away with, and the date and time of the murder, clarifying to him that it was early in the morning of March 10th rather than the evening of March 9th, as had been claimed. And, and on Diver Dan, yes, it's true, he's married to a clam. Yep, that's it. Uh, his name was John True, but still. Oh, right. Um, she also said that she'd been at Mabel's house when everything took place. So she really incriminated the living shit out of herself. Oh, no. When she looks back on this in Hortense, she's going to be kicking herself. (laughs) Donna's sentence was reduced to time served and she was released from prison. Uh Uh-huh. Out she goes. Off your pop, Donna. Mm. I wonder if she has any regrets about this. Donna, the squealer. The media had a field day with this case. Stories about a brassy blonde broad like Barbara Graham being charged with murdering a sweet older widow didn't happen every day and saw newspapers flying off the shelves. The press nicknamed her Bloody Babs and gave her a million times more attention than her equally guilty male co-accused. Babs was portrayed as an ice-cold sex siren who showed no remorse for her crimes and wayward ways. The press dubbed her vain, deceitful and seductive. She only did the pistol whipping, though. She didn't do the choking, did she? No, but I actually, I think it should be frowned upon pistol whipping frail old ladies. Oh, well, it's a felony. I mean, it's not a good thing. Well, it's a constructive murder is what we call it here, a felony murder. Um, If if someone gets murdered in the process of a robbery, everyone involved in that robbery, it goes down for murder. Yeah, it's... Yeah, I mean, it's it's appropriate. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not actually arguing with it. Sure. You're not? Mm Mm-mm. Okay. Babs, Santo and Emmett were all sentenced to death for the robbery and murder. Babs appealed her sentence, but her appeals failed and she was transferred to death row at San Quentin State Prison to await execution. At 11.28am on June 3rd, 1955, Babs was led from her cell to be strapped into the gas chamber. She requested to be blindfolded so she didn't have to look at the observers. Count to ten after you hear the cyanide tablets drop and then take a deep breath. It's easier that way, an officer whispered to her. His advice prompted Babs to sneer. How the hell would you know? Oh, Babs. Babs's last words were, good people are always so sure they're right. But I actually take issue with that. I think good people have more self-doubt because they can see things from other perspectives. Well, but, you know. Babs got a lot of things wrong. Yeah. She, she, made, she made some bad choices. <laughs> sort of should have stayed in Reno. Should have stayed in Reno. Ah. Um, So Barbara Graham is buried in Mount Olivet Cemetery, San Rafael, California. 
Actress Susan Hayward won the Best Actress Academy Award for playing Babs in the movie I Want to Live in 1958. Now, the movie strongly suggests that Babs was innocent. However, much of the film is fictionalised. All right, I think it's time for some... Is it time for some toilet wine? No, it's not time for toilet wine, Tara. It's time for True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. True Crime Nerd Time. I love True Crime. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, documentary, graphic novel, song, toilet wine, or just about <laughs> anything that has scratched your true crime toilet wine itch. <laughs> you can record your f- <sighs> you can record your voice. Just do it on your phone. We'll play it or write it, and we'll read it out. And we have one here from Caitlin Thompson. She's from Adelaide, and she's writing to us about the book Roger Rogerson by Duncan McNabb. It's always confusing when the book is named the same thing as the person. The one last week, too, The Granny Killer. Was it called was called The, the Granny so was, You know, and this yeah. is kind of a similar vibe. Yes. Anyway, good well, luck the, with that. Well, the book Roger Rogerson is about Roger Rogerson, <laughs> and it's called Roger Rogerson. There you go. Is it written by Roger Rogerson? No. Oh, okay. It's actually <laughs> written by Duncan McNabb. Now, we covered Roger the Dodger back in episode 29, and I remember reading this book as part of my research. Oh, um, who's a good boy? Oh, well, you know, I read the back. <laughs> I read the whole book. It was a good book, actually. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Caitlin writes, Even if you've only had a very fleeting interest in the goings-on of one of Australia's most infamous cops, then Roger Rogerson is going to be an extremely intriguing read. Whilst it's the story of the man and the myth that developed around him, it's also an important reminder of how that sort of myth-building can skew. The rogue hero persona that Rogerson built around himself shows why... He shouldn't be a celebrity or a figure of gentle affection for anybody. McNabb provides valuable insight into Rogerson's background and that of his co-murderer, Glenn McNamara. McNabb, as an insider who knew all about them from his own days in the New South Wales Police Force to contacts within the force and in the general community, and as an observer of the force from the point of view of a journalist of many years. This is not just a story of the murder trial. It provides past and present angles that readers may not necessarily have been given the opportunity to consider before. Particular that of the Internal Affairs Department, on whose desks various allegations against Rogerson have appeared over the years. McNabb is definitely no fan of Rogerson, but he's not alone there. Well, I'm not a fan, are you? Ah, oh, fan is not the right word, no. Yeah, I'm intrigued by him, though. The external persona that Rogerson was fond of portraying, the the twinkle in the eye, the smiling hearty bloke, one of the people facade, is something that quite a few folks have seen through a long time ago. Alas, with not quite enough evidence to be able to prove many of the allegations made. It also feels very much like McNabb is scrupulously fair with his retelling of facts. There was never any doubt in my mind about which was which. The book Roger Rogerson also answered a heap of questions that were in my mind about the murder with which he was finally charged, the murder of Sydney student 19-year-old Jamie Gow, killed after a drug deal gone wrong. That was a really sloppy thing, wasn't it? Was it was the sloppiest. It was caught on CCTV. Yeah. yeah. It was hard to believe that anyone as wily and cunning as Rogerson would have been so easily caught out in such a murder. It was even harder to believe that McNamara, who spent years styling himself as a crusading ex-cop, committed to exposing pedophilia and being anti-drugs was somehow involved. It seemed that Rogerson may have been a handful in his day, but technology and conceit combined to make the untouchable very touchable. This is a book that provides a lot of valuable and telling revelations into corruption and how easily it can become entrenched, how backgrounds and stories can be built by individuals and conflated by others for their own ends. It's also a telling take on celebrity crime. Criminals who are urban legends, or in this case, a corrupt and very dodgy cop who built himself into an urban legend, allowing everyone to conveniently ignore the damage and carnage left in his wake. Well, he was he was something. Oh, he was, he a was piece something. Of work. <laughs> he was. He really something. was. 
So uh, if you are interested in Roger Rogerson, have a look at the first uh, season of Blue Murder. Oh, yeah. Richard Roxborough does such a brilliant job oh, playing him. What was that made in the early 90s? Uh, yeah. 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 It's amazing. Or even mid-90s, but sometime around then. Or you could read this book if books are your thing. Yeah, you know, if you like, if you like words and shit. Oh, it's got some pictures. Oh, well, <laughs> pop-up? Is it a pop-up book? No, it's not. a. Whenever I mention books, you ask if it's a pop-up book. Well, you know. It's not really that popular now. And more's the pity. <laughs> true that. True that. So thank you, Caitlin. And if you do want to send in a true crime nerd time, send it to us at bloodymurderpodcast at gmail.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash boast. Are you going to shine on, you crazy diamond? Are you going to shine like every star in the sky? <sighs> <laughs> All right, Barney, time for you to get murdery. All right. Richard Stephen Devries was born on April 16, 1974. He grew up in the Latrobe Valley in southwestern Victoria, Australia, with his two brothers. His parents separated while he was quite young. When Richard was 10, he witnessed an attack on his stepfather, which resulted in his death. This is the kind of thing that stays with you and perhaps was a major factor in how his life would turn out. He dropped out of school in year 10 as he was always distracted and prone to violent outbursts. Later in life, Richard had a son and although he tried to participate in his life, he had no real desire to be a father. Being an unskilled labourer was the only work he could find. Wanting more than this from life, Richard turned to crime. His rap sheet began in 1991 when he was 17, with offences for armed robbery and theft. Richard spent a significant period of time then in custody. He had something in the order of 80 convictions from 19 court appearances, many of which involve offences of violence and dishonesty. On the night of February 18, 2011, Richard and his friend Stephen Turner had been at a hotel in Maui called Leggies, and then later at one of those horrible sports bars and pokey joints, the Turfside Tabaret. Oh, life is a tabaret, old chum. It is. Richard and Stephen had been talking shit all night and had drunk many pints of beer. After Richard and Stephen had finished at the Turfside Tabaret, they went to their friend Wes Bremer's unit at 1 High Street Moe to have even more beers. After several cold ones, they decided to leave. As Richard and his mate walked towards his 1983 black BMW, he realised he was blocked in by a Holden Commodore. What? The car was owned by Roy Poole. Incensed at having been inconvenienced, Richard yelled out for the person who owned the Commodore to move the car out of his way. Rodney Havis lived at Unit 6. He lived there with his girlfriend Christy and another man, Evan Rudd. Rodney later told a courtroom that he heard Richard yell out, Move your fucking car. Move it or I'll smash it up. I'll slash the tyres. Rodney responded by yelling back at Richard, You don't live here. You don't pay rent, so just fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, mate. Gillian Creighton, who lived in Unit 4, was at home with her daughter and a friend. She described hearing shouting, including an angry, pissed Richard saying, Whose car's in me way? Move your fucking car. Pissed Richard, huh? I love pissed Richard albums. Wired for drunk. Living slag. We're all going on a drunken turfside tabaret. That's the one. (laughs) Rodney, Roy and Evan then left Unit 6 to move the car. As they were going downstairs, Rodney heard Richard yelling out, Get a knife! Rodney then grabbed the sharpening steel from within his unit. Richard and Rodney approached each other in the car park. Realising there was going to be some biffo, as in don't bring a knife to a fist fight, Rodney dropped the sharpening steel and squared off against Richard. So Richard didn't have any weapons himself? Oh, not at this point. Okay. Hmm. Richard took a drunken swing at Rodney and missed. Rodney then slammed his fist into Richard's jaw and Richard staggered and fell over backwards. Rodney then asked him if he wanted some more and then told him, Get in your car and fuck off! (laughs) Richard's mate Stephen Turner helped his drunken mate to his feet and got him into the car. 
With Richard and Stephen back in their car, Roy Paul moved his Commodore out of their way. Richard sat in his car for a moment, backed out of the car park and then drove the few metres to where Evan and Rodney were. Richard wound down his window and under the pretext of saying he needed to get out of the car to collect some clothes from his friend in Unit 1, tried to get out of his car. But Evan was watching Rodney like a hawk. He noticed that Richard was now armed with a knife. He pushed back on the car door to stop Richard from getting out. Richard kicked the door hard, almost knocking Evan over and pushed his way out. Rodney later told police that it looked like Richard was punching Evan all over the chest. But Richard was not punching Evan, he was stabbing Evan, several times in the chest. Evan went limp and collapsed to the concrete in a pool of blood. A post-mortem carried out showed that Evan Rudd had multiple stab wounds to the chest which resulted in a fatal hemorrhage. Roy Poole jumped in and attempted to disarm Richard. He grabbed him by the shirt and tried to throw him to the ground, but Richard saw him coming and stabbed Roy in the upper body. He too fell to the ground dead. Richard then got back in his car and the sound of screeching tyres was heard by several witnesses as he hightailed it out of the car park. A few hours later, homicide detectives released an image of Richard Devries to the media and a manhunt began. Detectives advised the public that Richard was armed and warned people not to approach him. And certainly don't park him in. Oh God, nah, nah, don't do that. Detectives said a black 1983 BMW, which they believed Richard was driving, now had stolen registration plates. It didn't take long for police to catch Richard. Only three days. He's not a mastermind criminal. No, no, no I, I wouldn't have thought so. There's not a hell of a lot of uh, Kaiser Soze about the guy. No, no. When it came to trial in June 2012, Richard pleaded not guilty, citing self-defence. After a trial lasting some two weeks, the jury found him guilty of one count of murder and one count of manslaughter. He could have just stayed in the fucking car. Yeah. At sentencing, Judge Lasry stated, At the time Richard Deverish stabbed these two men, there was nothing whatsoever to prevent him from driving his vehicle out of the driveway of the units. Well, I mean, it would have been a massive drunk driving type deal, but uh, way better than murder. Richard had no valid reason to stop his car and get out as he did. I am satisfied the only reason that you stopped the vehicle in the vicinity of these men was for the purpose of attacking them with the knife in your possession and in retaliation for the fact that you had suffered in the previous altercation some time beforehand. Richard's defence tried to suggest that the situation was evolving, but the jury saw it for what it was. Richard's ego was butthurt when he was put on his ass. Butthurt toxic masculinity. Damn straight. Even though Richard offered to plead guilty to defensive homicide to both counts, the jury were directed that they could find him guilty on possible alternatives. I'm glad they did, and they certainly rejected that Richard was defending himself in any way. Yeah. Judge Lasry stated, These are extremely serious offences and are, in some respect, almost beyond belief. For example, that two men could have lost their lives over some minor issue about car parking brings to a new level my frustration at the willingness of some men affected by alcohol as you were to use knives to make some futile point resulting in tragedy. I have no doubt the community is appalled by this utterly pointless and avoidable loss of two young lives, and for that matter, the ruination of your life for the foreseeable future. He's not wrong. No. Over a dozen victim impact statements were read to the court, and I'm going to read them all out now, <laughs> yeah, word for word. In alphabetical, in alphabetical order. order. No, I'm going to sum them up. Afterwards, Judge Lasry said, Listening to the effect of your crimes on those people close to the men whose lives you took was obviously a harrowing experience. Each of those people has been significantly affected by your actions. Evan Budd was 29 years of age. Roy Poole was the same age. Their friends and family are having to deal with the fact that these young lives were taken as they were embarking on the best years of their adult lives. And clearly those close to them will carry the impact of your crimes for the rest of their lives. I take the relevant parts of those victim impact statements into account in the sentence that I will impose on you. I frankly do not know what to make of your prospects. Despite the submissions of your defence, I can only conclude that your prospects for rehabilitation at any time in the future, are very poor. Yes, they are very poor. 
at the point where I'd normally be able to recite your background in the hope of trying to understand your conduct and looking for some basis on which to assess your prospects of rehabilitation, I was told by your defence that although no disrespect was meant, you did not wish to dredge up the past or involve family and friends in this matter. Oh, he doesn't want to look back in Hortense. <laughs> no, no one does. <laughs> no. I therefore do not have any significant outline of your personal circumstances beyond your criminal record. Well, maybe he didn't have a lot of mitigating circumstances. Maybe he didn't have any. Oh, well, hang on. No, because his, um, his stepdad was killed in front of him. Probably could have brought that up. Yeah, he could have brought a yeah. I feel like that could be yeah, that, considered that, somewhat relevant. Uh, you would think so, wouldn't you? Maybe he's just not very bright. Maybe he had shitty lawyers too. That's entirely possible. Maybe he didn't He didn't have douche hounds. At the time when Richard lost his shit over a car park, he had been on parole for recklessly causing serious injury in the Folsom Prison in 2003 and for an armed robbery in 2002. I think these murders may have violated those paroles, Tara. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit, eh? Judge Lasry described his latest crimes as futile, violent and mindless, and by the time you stabbed these men, your actions were unprovoked. He added, You were being urged to leave the premises. In this case, you have destroyed two lives, seriously affected the lives of a number of others, and left yourself with little to hope for. Your conduct is to be condemned, and the community is entitled to be protected from you. Roy Poole had become engaged shortly before his death. His fiancée, Claire, told the court she had lost the love of her life. I have a constant ache for Roy and our lives together, she said in a victim impact statement. Evan Rudd was just showing signs of turning his life around when he was murdered over the car park dispute. Speaking to the media after the sentencing of Richard in the Melbourne Supreme Court, Evan's father, Evan Rudd Sr., said his son was a good person who had a few social issues, showing signs of coming back to a normal life when he was brutally stabbed to death in February 2011. When asked how he felt about Richard's sentence, Mr Rudd said it did not sit well with him. These were two young blokes who had a lot to live for. It's devastating they're gone and there is just a hole in our lives, he said. The other day I saw someone who just looked like Evan down the street, down to the little ball patch on the back of his head, and I just sunk. I'm still seeing him everywhere. Mr Rudd said it had been a difficult time for his family, with them finding it hard to adjust to losing Evan. We used to go fishing, and I would run him around because he didn't have a driver's licence. It's the little things that you don't take notice of that you miss the most. He's missed real bad. Yeah, people leave a trail. Yeah, for sure. They do. There's a little bit more to this story, Tara. There's always more to the story. In 2013, car park killer Richard Devries lost an appeal against his convictions. His lawyer unsuccessfully tried to appeal, arguing there had been a miscarriage of justice during the trial. He argued the Crown Prosecutor had characterised one of the key witnesses as untrustworthy, which may have influenced the jury's verdict. Um, isn't that what prosecutors do? <laughs> yeah. Well, the court disagreed and that was thrown out. Mm-hmm. Richard also planned to appeal against his sentence. However, the matter was adjourned when Richard was informed he may receive a longer sentence if the appeal proceeded. Right. So I say, suck it. Go for it, Richard. Appeal yeah. it. Oh, yeah. Ah. Uh, Whatever, man. Nah, Richard's a dick. He certainly is. I think I know what's happening next. It's well, on the tip of my tongue. It starts with... Um, Aussie as. What is that? You still don't know? I don't know. Haven't done any research no, into the no, topic? None. Episode 96, still no, no idea. Got nothing. Have you got something? Oh, I got something, all right. Aussie as are tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? I would. A central Queensland man who believed he might cark it after he was bitten by a deadly eastern brown snake decided to crack open a tinny while he waited for the ambulance to arrive. Good. (laughs) Good. I was falling asleep then, but then you'd said cracked a tinny and I'm I'm up. Got into it. 54-year-old Yapoon resident Rod Somerville, probably nicknamed Summo, was doing a spot of gardening recently when he had himself a spot of mischief. Summo was moving a few pot plants in his yard when he accidentally bothered a brown snake and it bit him on the finger. Summo's reaction was to grab a shovel and whack it on the head. After that, he called an ambulance. Fearing these might be his last moments on earth, he then grabbed a beer from the fridge and sat down and drank it. 
Some stated, I said to myself, if I'm going to cack it, I'm going to have a beer. So I got a Goldie out of the fridge and drank it. Because, you know, Eastern Browns are the second most venomous snake in the world. Summer was taken straight to the Yapoon Hospital, then transferred to Rockhampton to receive the anti-venom. Unfortunately, he suffered an allergic reaction to the treatment. That's the anti-venom to the Goldie, the Forex. To the Forex, yeah. That- well, you need an anti-venom for your Forex unless you're Jason Abercrombie. Oh, that's a shit beer. Oh, God, yeah. Um, so he actually said that the treatment nearly killed me as well. So it was a double whammy. He ended up spending four days in intensive care and three weeks in hospital after the snake bite. What an Aussie battler. We're so glad you pulled through, Summo. Twice. Australia salutes you. Nice one, Summo. Uh, also, I'd really like to thank Xander Woody Taylor for bringing this one to my attention. Yeah. Thank you so much. So, thanks for listening to us create podcasting history. Yet again. Yet again. With and- more poo jokes. <laughs> And thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website, or if you just want to buy us a drink because we're thirsty, there's a PayPal donate button there too. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraband. And we're Bloody Murder. Don't forget to review us on iTunes or our Facebook page. And of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Join our Facebook group, Bloody Murder Podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Snapchat and Insta. Check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes, and some sweet-ass merchandising. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. So last weekend, Dexter had to go to a birthday party, and yeah. I said, you, you want to go and get ready to go, up this, go to this party? Yeah. And, and he just looked at me and, said, and started running up the stairs and said, I've got to go and get handsome. <laughs> <laughs> and what did he choose to wear? Uh, well, you know, it was just a shirt. Oh, okay, I thought he might come down in something truly spectacular. Well, like a, a dinner suit or something. Yeah, or like, I don't know, that scene in um, My Fair Lady where she's dressed for the ball and she comes down looking, oh, oh ever so glamorous. Uh, well, no, uh, no, he did, he, looked, he did look pretty handsome. Yeah, oh, well, good on him. He's a good boy. He is. He really is. kept lying that it wasn't on and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. I wish Bill Pacman was my dad. Is that Pacman's first name, Bill? Yep. The one who eats the ghosts. Mm-hmm. Inky Blinky. Um, I don't know their names, man. You could just say anything right now and really? I'd just be like, whatever. Hey, I love that Mars has a moon called Jeff. Yeah. Is that true, though? Is that true? Does Mars really have a moon called Jeff? Yes, I have proof. Phobius and Jeff. Yep. Yeah. Makes you really consider all those songs like Blue Jeff, doesn't it? That's right. What does a dice girl do? Um, well, it's like a female impersonator. It's, what, what was it? Andrew Dice Clay, Rusty Trombone. Those are my notes. <laughs> Andy, Andrew give, Dice Clay, Rusty Trombone. You give, you, well, a dice girl, uh, Barney, uh, gives Rusty Trombones to Andrew Dice Clay. I think it was, uh, I think <laughs> okay, that was yeah, your okay, answer. Okay, good. All right, well, I'll try that. Can you please ask me what it is again? And you can't blame them for it, can you? Chips are pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Mm. By the power of my fat arms, chips are very good. (laughs) (laughs) Your bingo wings. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as a seagull, they give me flight. We are recording right now. I'm just making myself feel more comfortable with the mic. I could tickle those and then then talk into it. I know you're incredibly comfortable with cocks and balls in your face, Barney. Well, as are you. Well, yeah. I mean, it's not in dispute. And then you just turn around and there's a prime opportunity for some... Rusty trombone! Well, I was thinking bum tongue. I would start oh. with the bum tongue and then move on to the rusty trombone. I know you're in a rush. You've got some place <laughs> to be. You want to go straight for the rusty trombone? It's actually a good idea to work up to it because, like, you don't start with the fireworks, do you? No. no. You build up to the fireworks. What, do you have a little a, a nice folk band playing first? Which oh, is tickling I mean, the balls. And then I want the fireworks to go off. Sure, why not? Yeah? Does yeah. that sound good? Yeah, it's it's a three-act structure. I think I'm broken already. <laughs> no, nah, you can't be. It's too early. Fucking suck it up. <laughs> and go. What, like a pig? You <laughs> suck it like a pig. Suck it like an elephant. Suck it like a giraffe. I don't care how you suck it as long as you keep going. Uh, can I pick the animal? Yes. 
What do you want to suck it like? A sloth. Suck it like a sloth. <laughs> Drop it like a sloth. Drop it like a sloth. Oh, it's giving you a beat saying, suck it like a sloth. Suck, suck it, it like a sloth. sloth. You oh, know yeah. you want to Ooh. do it lazily. Suck it like a sloth. Suck it like a sloth. It's so lazy you only have three toes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how lazy is that? You can't I, even have five. I really like that. <laughs> I, I enjoyed Maybe it. your next song will be that. Well, yeah. It's like eating, sam- eating a sandwich and poo coming out of your bum. That's what sex work is. It's exactly the same. <laughs> right, yeah. I don't believe she said anything about pooing, dude. Oh, uh, well, you know, it's, all, it's everyone does it, all right? Don't mm. just, like, feel uncomfortable about it. <laughs> Why All right, we, what, I'm going to do one right now. Why do we have to go into a little room and, and, and be ashamed? <laughs> and well, be ashamed of what, what our body does in a natural way. Right. So how would you prefer that we went about well, it? Well, we should all do it together as a family. <laughs> Why? We just have all these toilets in a circle and we just sit and shit together as a family, holding hands. The look, you- and you have to look everybody in the eye while you do it. Oh, so they're all facing inwards, the toilets. They're all facing inwards. <laughs> And what do you call this particular arrangement? Ah, oh, it's a poo. It's a poo circle. <laughs> uh, the family poo circle. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 I guess my family is just not that close. Yeah. Wow. That's why. Yeah, I know. This is, this is the source of all of yes. my problems you socially. Need, you need to look your auntie in the eye while you're doing this <laughs> shit. <laughs> wow, my auntie. That'd be really good. She's um she's quite obsessed with Xena Warrior Princess. So maybe if I wore that outfit while pooing and looking her in the eye, it would be a more enjoyable experience for her. Oh, I think everyone would enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> everyone but Lucy Lawless. Like that, podcasting. Yeah. I mean, well, the second you join the podcast we listen to group, it's, it's a whole downhill from there. Oh, yeah. They're a city <laughs> bunch of people, aren't they? Oh, Lord. Uh, it's like Mad Max. <laughs> it's Thunderdome every day. Yeah. And then sometimes it's like the Fury Road one where there's that guy that's like, you know, playing the guitar while they're uh, all driving around trying to kill Charlie's Theron. Yeah. It's exactly like that. You know what they need? A good toilet poo circle. <laughs> <laughs> I think that could fix all their problems. <laughs> well, you know what? It's worth a shot. It's worth a I'll shot. I'll try anything at this yeah, point. Yeah. Better get drunk about it, huh? <sighs> never drinking again. I never drank in the first place. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, isn't that the power that we have? Just rewrite history whenever the fuck we want? No, you can only do that if you win. Ah, okay. The losers can't do that. (laughs) Only the winners get to rewrite history. we're fucked then, aren't we? Well, we we certainly are (laughs) fucked. All right, let's get this toilet circle going. I really, I need something else. You really want to get this toilet circle going? Well, it's normally just for family, but I think we could do a friendship uh, poo circle. (laughs) Friendship poo circle. Well, Uh, your girlfriend's here right now. Surely, like, the three of us. We could do a poo triangle. You up for a poo triangle, Trey Trey? Hell no. (laughs) She said no, but I could tell that she meant yes. No, no, that's not how, no, no. I th- I'm going to take it as a maybe. Okay, yeah, a maybe, which means no. Oh. You know Facebook events? Will you be attending? Maybe. Oh, that just means I just yeah. don't want to tell you Well, no. maybe she clicked on interested. Yeah, I'm sure she's interested. She wants to know how, how it's going. <laughs> yeah. Well, she lives with you, so I imagine she does yeah. these all the time. Yeah. Maybe she just doesn't have any poo right now, and well, that's the problem. Don't you think it would be wonderful if you could just look an acquaintance in the eye while pooing and, and, and the shame would just lift away. It's not a shameful thing, pooing. You don't have to hide in a little dark room and do it by yourself. Yeah. What's the difference? That's what's the difference. <laughs> okay, Barney. He'd heard about a frail 64-year-old... That's 65 a warehouse, A warehouse full of cans of yogurt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So just many, bring a spoon. Just bring a spoon <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a trolley because there'll be so many cans of yogurt, more than the eye can see. And then we can sit in a little poo circle and look at each other in the eye and eat our yogurt and poo. Wow. You're an ideas man, aren't you? Uh, uh, yeah, well, I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> I'm, oh, I'm, I'm eating what you're shitting, Barney. I think it's a good idea. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just adding an extra layer. I uh, thought it was a can of yogurt. Irish, Irish, Iris, oh, I probably need to do the whole thing, don't I? Because I would have just mangled my words hey, into Hey, Tara, mm. you, when you get the tub of yogurt, right, and it has that little spoon, and it's a little fold-up spoon, and you get it under the lid. Oh, and yeah. You, and you, do, you, do you like to use that little tiny little fold-up spoon that they have under the lid? I don't. No, I only eat plain yogurt. I don't eat sugar yogurt, and those only come with sugar yogurt. Oh, okay. I'll get a spoon from the kitchen. 
I don't like that little shit spoon. So you never have to be at work when you... Because sometimes there's no spoons because all of the fucking idiots steal the spoons to put in their purse with cans of yogurt, I guess. Well, I bring my own spoon. <laughs> yeah, and your own can of yogurt. That's right. No, they're tubs. Uh, I think we should stop talking about true crime and just do a yogurt and shitting podcast in future. What do you yeah, reckon? I think it's a great idea. Yep. I've got a lot more to say on this subject, by the way. <laughs> we can record from our poo circle. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Coming at you live from our poo circle. All right. It's Barney and Tara. Yeah. You know people say we're all made out of stardust and stuff. You I know, think they say you and I are made out of shameful shit. Well, you know dog turds are made out of stardust too. That's why I snort them every opportunity so, I know, get. What's the big deal if you're made out of stardust? I don't get it. We're all dog turds. Made out of stardust. <laughs> <laughs> and you're a philosopher. Oh, oh my God. Oh, just, just, yeah. You're a Renaissance man, is what you are, Barney. Do you have a favourite flavoured yogurt? Do you uh, like strawberry? Cherry. Cherry? Mm. Oh. But again, I don't eat the sugary yogurts. No? Nah. I like a fruit salad one where they have. Oh, little... they're lovely, but they have as many carbs as like some kind oh, of actual yeah, dessert. Yeah, so, pretty... what's the point? Look, I don't have a yogurt every day. It's not an everyday food yogurt, it's more of a treat. Funny that you're going on like this on page three yet again, because uh, it's it's page three. You're recording the podcast takes all day, but seven hours are spent on Tara's page three. Well, <laughs> I've got a lot to th- uh, a lot to say on this topic. Hey, do you remember last week I was talking about froggit? Oh my god! What I'm gonna you're gonna eat yogurt in front of me? Yeah, and you're gonna like it because <laughs> I've never seen you eat it, and now apparently that's the only thing you want to talk about on the true crime podcast that well, we do. Well, yeah, it's the kind of thing I like to do by myself in a little darkened room, a toilet perhaps, a shame, in a shameful way. <laughs> <laughs> Is that like when you when you cried or while you ate the cheesecake under your bed? I did not cry while I was I was happy when I ate that whole cheesecake. You were sad afterwards though because you got a really bad tummy ache. I wasn't sad. I was feeling ill. <laughs> that's the difference. Were you happy about it? I wasn't happy about <laughs> feeling ill. Well, there you go. But I was happy while I, I thought, oh, fuck yeah, I'm going to eat this whole cheesecake by myself. It's my birthday. I deserve it. And I did. <laughs> it's my birthday. I deserve it. That's right. You know, every day is someone's birthday. Well, you know, I'm not going to celebrate Hitler's birthday, am I? Well, I mean, you wouldn't in public, but. Yeah. So. See, there's things that you can do in private that you can't do in public. I probably couldn't do Hitler's birthday anywhere. Celebrate Hitler's birthday no. in the toilet. That's what you, is that what you do in private? No, that's when you... You know, you see how people go live on Facebook and you're like, what's the fucking point? Well, I finally get it. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they do it on Instagram it's too. It's a global poo circle. I get it. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to organise with all the time zones, but it's incredibly worth it. Yeah, yeah. It's a Skyping global poo circle. Oh, you know, if it brings world peace, I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> you know? I, I believe it cures cancer too, which is lucky. Does it? Yeah. <coughs> Was that a snot? No. Aw. Careful in the kitchen now. She set a snot trap for me. <laughs> she set a snart trap for me She put some she, flowers in the kitchen? Yeah, in a Yeah, vase, that's a snart trap Right where I walk past Right It's a snart trap she, She's trying to trick me into snarting again is, is The snart entrapment Yeah It's a movie It stars Alec Baldwin and Demi Moore And uh, Sean Connery's there for sure Oh, uh, well, yeah Oh, the snart entrapment saga She just wants me to walk past Do a snart so she can laugh at me But I'm not falling for that shit again she oh. wants you to do a snit. What's oh? Is that when you? S- yeah. Okay, I gotcha. Uh, I'm not doing that too. No, people can Google a snit. Google image it. Was well, that a sneeze and a shit? <laughs> well, duh. Uh. It's either that or you sneeze and knit at the I same time. I thought that was called a snap when you sneeze and crap. Oh, well, it depends what, what country you are in. Ah, oh, man, so terrible at maths. Good at other stuff though. Yeah, poo circles. Watch me smash a dish tub of yogurt. <laughs> Watch me. Nom, 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 nom. That's gone. Oh, wow. That was phenomenal. Uh, whilst. 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 <clears throat> I've had the most splendid Christmas follow Oh, whilst I was in the toilet doing a poo and looking at my <laughs> oh, no. mother straight in the eye, Papa came in and joined us. And it was divine and grand and oh, splendid. Oh, I feel bad for laughing at that. Bring about your ass, Barney. Yeah, I thought you were going to turn into sexy Barney. It was like you were transformed. <gasps> hey, baby. <laughs> you were On transforming. On the night of February 18, 2011, Richard and Morning. Ah, hey, baby. <laughs> Itchy mustache. Must scratch it.
Mm, yeah, you better. Oh, now I'm going to sneeze. Ah, the snot's coming. Oh, oh, the snot, the, I walked past the snot trap. The second snot of spring. I've been snared by a snot trap. <laughs> it's a snot trap. And if you want to know what a snot trap is, it's a sprig of jasmine putting in, put in a vase just where I walk past on the bench in the kitchen. My, uh, my, um, my lady friend put it there. As a trap to make me snart. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, wouldn't it be making everyone else snart too? Just you? Well, you know. No one else but you snarts, do they? Well, I'm not saying that. You, you're saying that. Yep. It's the truth. I but stand I'm, by I, it. I'm not saying that. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is... Another mask. <laughs> you can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcast, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. <laughs> 